Thanks, thanks, Chris. What a great song. Your love is a symphony, and it's appropriate. As you know, we've been uh, preaching through the Revelation, spent all fall on the first uh, three chapters in the letter to the seven churches. At the end of chapter three, something incredible happens. Um, and John, uh, Jesus says to John, hey, John, I want to show you something. And a door opens in heaven, and he sees that God's love really is like a, a symphony. Um, and it surrounds us, and it conquers. And that's medicine for these seven little churches and what they're struggling, struggling through. So uh, we're kind of at an interesting point in the Revelation, a transition. And uh, next week, we'll start chapter 4. This week, however, I'm really excited that Jolene Miller is uh, preaching. And when I asked Jolene if she'd preach this week, and I didn't know she'd be kind of reviewing, uh, talking about the seven churches, but it comes at a perfect time. So I want to introduce you to Jolene if you don't know her. Raise your hand if you know Jolene Miller. And Okay, all right. Free snacks for all of you, okay? I actually get snacks either way. But Jolene, why don't you come up here? Jolene's been a friend of mine uh, just for years. Um, gosh, been a part of the church for what? Forever and ever, forever maybe? And ever. Forever and ever. And, ever. and uh, Jolene is, on, and, amen? And Jolene's on our, on our board. Uh, Jolene's a, a counselor. And um, so I'm just really grateful for Jolene. So anything else I can say about you that no. other than you're just your pure awesomeness? Yeah, dial it down a little bit. Okay, all right. She's not. She's, she's really not that great. So you'll be pleasantly surprised. All right. So let's let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Jolene and Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jolene's love for 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 you, Lord Jesus, the living word and for your written word. And we pray that you would speak to us, that you would preach to us, that you would proclaim good news to us through Jolene. I thank you for her. I bless her, Lord. I pray that she'd hear the good news as she speaks it. In Jesus' name, we offer ourselves to you and Jolene. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Glad you're all wearing your coats. Well, we're at the end of a year, the beginning of a new year, where we anticipate things. And I'm wondering, how many of you make New Year's resolutions? Oh, this side is really the go-getters. This side's not doing so well. Well, I Googled, and I'm always grateful for Google, because it knows everything the top 10 New Year's resolutions that people generally make. So number 10, get organized. Number nine, increase your volunteering. Number eight, learn something new. Number seven was get out of debt. Six, quit drinking. Five, enjoy your life more. Four, quit smoking. Three, Tame the bulge. I like how they said that. It made me feel a little less bad. Tame the bulge. Two, fit in some fitness. And one, spend more time with family and friends. Following that was the list of the 10 most commonly broken New Year's resolutions. And all we have to do is just reverse the order and you have all the most commonly broken resolutions. But how about you? How are you taking stock? Maybe you're one of the people who pick out a word for the year. Have you heard about this little tradition? People are picking out a word, grace, inspire, kindness, and it becomes their guiding word for all of their decisions about behaviors or whatever they're going to do, that they strive to cultivate that word in their life. 
But as I was thinking about today and the end of the year and what Peter's been talking about, I noticed it comes at the end of the book. Like Revelation is at the end of the book and Jesus is kind of taking stock of these churches based on things that are important to him and I think it's also because he knows that they're important for us. And there are all the, I think at least once or twice it said the Lord loves those he disciplines. I think it's easy to hear in these messages that he's kind of getting after them. But I prefer to think of it as a way that he's saying, hey, this would be better for you if you didn't do this or you did do this. And I also think it would be really difficult to underestimate how painful it is to Jesus to experience that separation when we're doing things that keep us apart from him. So in some ways, I think it's a reflection of his own broken heart that he goes, oh man, this just, it hurts you so much, but it hurts me because it keeps us apart. So in preparing for this, I re-listened to all of the sermons. I have spent hours with, with Peter. I've had all of these words, and I, I began to think this was really a bad idea. How do I possibly <laughs> condense seven hours into what I want to do. So I want you to know that these are my crumbs from the banquet that Peter has served. I am not going to get all of it. There's so much more I could have said. There are so many nuances to all of this that I couldn't possibly capture it. So I just want you to know these are my crumbs. You might have other ones. But I think it's important because after every letter, the angel or Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I think that was for them, but as I look out, I see a lot of ears. So it must also be for us. So let's see what we can hear. So first church was Ephesus, sermon title, that love and feeling, or more accurately, you've lost it. And so I wonder what it would be like for you to risk allowing yourself to fall in love again this year. to do the things that you did at first when you first fell in love with Jesus. But maybe you need to look at some of your relationships and fall in love with the people in your life again. As we go through all of these things and the points that, that we've made, I realize how hard it is to fight for love. And doesn't that seem kind of like an oxymoron? Like when you're first in love with someone, it is not hard. It's not hard to go to movies you don't particularly like, or see films you don't particularly, or eat food you don't particularly like, or, you know, I even went um, out of love. I went to a monster truck mash. <laughs> and I had the best time ever. But it wasn't really because I liked monster truck mashes. But it was fun. And I think it provides us a mindset as we step into the things that Jesus is calling to us, things that are hard, things that maybe we don't want to look at ourselves, because when we do it out of love, it gets easier. Our communion in Jesus, one of the things that Peter said, is it conquers all things. So we don't even have to do the conquering. So let yourself fall in love again this year. Okay, on to Smyrna, prosperity gospel. How are you defining what makes you prosperous? It says, if you remember the church in Smyrna, they were having poverty and tribulation. 
They'd been kicked out of the church. They took everything that they had. They were being persecuted. But I got to tell you, I, I really have a hard time feeling prosperous when I feel broke and I feel like things aren't going very well. I wonder if you can relate to that. One of the things that Peter said that I thought was really powerful was money is the currency that we measure our human effort, but it has no inherent value. So what are you marking your life by? What's your currency? Where are you experiencing your poverty and tribulation? Because that's what apparently connects you to others in Jesus. And the mystery of it is he's already borne all of your poverty and tribulation and found a way through for it before you ever experienced it in time. So when you're feeling it, maybe it's the place of your treasure. Maybe it's the place that you're rich. Not only did I listen to Peter, but I have his Apocalypse Now series. If you haven't had it, it's the unedited version of his Eternity Now. But in it, he gives the example of the story of the Blitz. When questioned, some Londoners that survived World War II, they were asked, when did you feel your most rich? When did you have the best experience during the war? And they said it was during the Blitz, when we were all down in the tunnels and London was being bombed. We didn't have much. We might go back to our homes being completely shattered but we were down there with each other, and that's what made us feel rich. We desire money, power, our reputation to make us feel important. But it's through our poverty and our tribulation when we've got nothing that it's there that we discover the truth of Jesus, which is we already are important. So what if you opened your hands this year and let go of the things that you thought made you rich and grab hold of the thing that does make you rich. That you are somebody. You don't have to make yourself somebody because Jesus has already made you. So that's my crumb from Smyrna. Pergamum. Loved Pergamum. This is the one about your name. Do you guys remember the song? Can anybody sing me the song? Come on. There we go. It's not my name. So the question is, what names have you taken on this year? What names have you given yourself? What names have other people given you? Remember this, to the degree that you've taken on a name, you've rejected the name that Jesus gave you. So learn the chorus and sing the song. How do we know what's true about us and what's not? Well, here's a nugget. If it won't stick to the resurrected Jesus, it shouldn't stick to you. Because there isn't anything more important about you than what God says about you. So learning your name and knowing who you are as well as who you're not is the key. Sing the song. I would challenge you to become curious about what's on your white rock. I think we get a lot of names that Jesus reveals to us all the time. And until we get to the other side, when we get our name name that we're not going to know till then, I think he gives us the name that we need. Maybe it's perseverance. Maybe it's caring. 
Maybe it's long suffering. Maybe it's strength. Maybe it's laughter. But look to your name on the stone, because it'll show up when you need it, and learn to sing the song to keep you from taking on a name that doesn't belong to you. Four, Thyatira, Thyatira? How do you say it, Peter? I don't know. I don't know? I, I don't live there. Well, yeah, this one was hard. I say, I say Thyatira. Thyatira. The love that can't be pimped. Oh, that one was a little hard for me because it made me think about how are the ways that I misuse love? Who do I objectify or commoditize? How do I do that with God to get what I want? I think part of it for me came down to buying into the idea that we use love to get what we need instead of receiving love and letting it meet our needs. But we try to buy and sell things. And you know, oftentimes I hear it in the subtlest ways. So how many of you have heard this? Um, well, hey, it's just business. It's not personal. It's just the way the game's played. That's just life. I went to a conference one time for women in business, and they had an outbreak session on mentoring. And I was like, oh, this will be awesome, because it's kind of where my heart is. You pour into people, you help people grow, you find people who want to pour into you. Oh, no. No, 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 no. It was about leveraging. Who can you find to that's up the ladder from you that you could form a relationship with that you could leverage to advance yourself? How do you objectify someone to move you in your life instead of just loving them? So it makes, we make others play our whore, but maybe a bigger question is who do you play the whore for? How do you sell yourself out? Who do you let use you because you think it's the way the game is played? It kills love. And our pride keeps us from surrendering to drink from the cup of true love. So those are some things for you to think about from Thyatira. Tyra, Tyra. Okay, number five, Sardis, the dead who don't know they're dead. I really related to this one. I don't know about you. So many times I, I feel like I'm not really sure I'm alive. I'm not sure I'm living. Wake up. But this one was also about the mask that we put on so that we don't have to surrender to our true identity. It's about our reputation. Do you remember this sermon? It was about the dumpster. At... Was it Dan Danville? And how the real stuff happened out at the dumpster, where we all hide what we really don't want people to see. And how we build a reputation that we really can't live up to because we really think that's what other people want. It's this false way of connecting to other people because, well, what I know you really want from me is this, and then maybe I can get what I really want from you through this, but I can't hold it up forever. It will kill me. So what reputation have you built up that you need to live up to?
so the risk is, how do you truly be known and know other people? And you know what, it's gonna hurt. When I was part of um, the Women at the Cross ministry, I experienced this a lot, that people would come up all googly-eyed thinking that you were something, and I was thinking, oh honey, I so wish I was that person that you think I am. But as I began to take risks to be known by some people, one of the most painful things that happened was I lost some friendships because I took them out to the dumpster. And when they saw who I really was, which was always me, I was never the story that they told themselves about me. But they, I was such a disappointment, they didn't want to be my friend anymore. Oh, that's the fear to overcome. That if I go back to Smyrna, that I already am someone, I can let go of some of the mass that I have. But a question you might ask is, who do I prefer to know through their reputation than really knowing them? Because sometimes we do. And who am I willing to drop my reputation for, but who am I willing to let them drop their reputation as well? Okay. So wake up. All right, six, Philadelphia, we're moving right through. See, this is so much faster. <laughs> so Philadelphia, in my mind, and Laodicea are two sides of the same coin. One is the open door, one is the closed door. And different qualities. So on the open door, we've got poverty and no power. And remember, this is the sermon about Eric, just Eric, the boy who lived in the pipe whose dad had abandoned him. And Peter challenged us to think about, well, what's your pipe? I mean, some of us have some nice pipes. The places that we built for our own security, our names, our titles, our bank accounts. And he said this, a person is like a pipe, an earthen vessel filled with ruach, breath of God, that he then brings to life. But how does he do that? Well, because our open door is the fact that because we have no power, we have to attach ourselves to our only place of power, which is Jesus. He's the open door. And that lack of power forces us to look for the door because I got nothing. Have you ever felt that? I got nothing. I say that a lot when I go to work. It's like, Lord, I gotta meet with all these people you brought for me today. I got nothing to offer them. And usually those are the best days when I become a little more unselfconscious and I look for the door. So what's your open door that maybe you can't see because you've been looking at your pipe or your lack of power, your lack of training, your lack of intelligence, your lack of certification, your lack of whatever. And then Peter told the story about Mary. Remember six-year-old Mary? doing the back float in the perfect storm that she was able to do because she found the open door of her faith. It was her faith in the hope of the promise of her father. And I kind of struggled with that because I don't have that story. I don't have those people who showed up for me even in their absence, who came back. So this one is a little more of a challenge for me personally. 
But Mary didn't have anything. She just had faith and hope in her dad. But that hope is Jesus, who then grows faith in us. And so then it becomes a circular thing. The more we have hope, we go through the open door, the faith gets bigger, the hope gets larger, and the circle gets easier. Peter said this, God keeps us from the storm on the outside by filling us on the inside with hope. Jesus is the door. So as you look for the door, he will open the door in you, and that connects you to the throne room of God, where God keeps filling you up. But he gives meaning to all reality. And so when I let go of what I think I need and I walk through the door, it suddenly makes sense of my reality. And isn't that what we're all looking for? What does this all mean? And the only way you can find that is to let go of yourself and walk through the door. All right, Laodicea, number seven. This is pleasant as hell. The basic thrust of this one is that their comfortableness blinded them because they already thought they had it in the bag. They already had their ticket punched. I don't need this. And this reminded me of another seminar I went to because apparently I need a lot of them. But the presenter said, because he's talking to a whole bunch of well-seasoned therapists, and he said, I'd like you to think about what I'm about to present as a series of ideas that you might be interested in and to let go of what you think you know because you can't learn what you think you already know. It keeps us blind to maybe what we really need. And this is where, G where Peter showed the picture of Jesus at the door with the dialogue, like, knock, knock, who's there? It's Jesus, what do you want? I want to come in. I'm afraid. Because I've already got this down. I've got my ticket punched. You might wreck it. So how often do you fear that Jesus is going to wreck what you've already built? He's going to mess you up. He's not really good. But it's that doorway, it's that closed door of our fear that keeps us in hell. It keeps us trapped. It keeps us trapped in our reputation or what we've already built. So what are you hiding from behind your closed door? How are you saying to Jesus, I don't know if you're good enough. I don't know if you're really trustworthy enough. And I'm kind of happy in this trap that I've made for myself, except for sometimes it just doesn't feel quite right. This is also where it talks about the lukewarm water. Do you remember the lukewarm water? I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you up. And one of the things that occurred to me is it was something that was culturally normed. They didn't think anything about it because they got their water from another place, Heliotropus or Polis, I don't know, this other place that had hot springs. I don't know why you would build a pipe from someplace with hot springs instead of the city that had the cold water, but that's just me. But by the time it got there, it was lukewarm and not very flavorful, but they were used to it. And I think that's also part of our blindness, that we develop this cultural anesthesia, that it just seems normal to us. Which is also another key why I think Jesus wrote these letters, because he's like, you've become anesthetized to what's real because this is what's culturally normed. 
but it may not be true. And so maybe part of opening the door is learning to question what we think we already know and what's become normal for us. You know, I was thinking about when I used to travel to the South and how different the food is in the South from how it is here. Lots, it's good, it's lots of cream, lots of butter, lots of starches, lots of desserts. Women at the Cross in Kentucky and Alabama was always better because the desserts and the snacks. Awesome. But you come to Colorado and you're going to get clementines and trail mix and power bars, celery. It's like... <laughs> and when the women from Kentucky would come to staff, they'd go, this is what y'all eat? Because it was foreign to them, but this was normal. And we were like, this is what you all eat? I mean, can't you hear your arteries snapping as you swallow? But we become normed to things that one, maybe aren't good for us, and two, they're not really real. So where do you need to invite Jesus in for dinner? Hold on. In the next chapter, we really understand that Jesus is the door. And he needs us to walk through it because he's going to show us some really amazing things. So you've got to look for it. So, our repeated themes. Have ears to hear. I don't know what your crumbs are, but I'd encourage you to start listening. The other thing that, G that Peter said in every sermon was, Jesus means God is salvation. Not I am salvation, not Mises, but Jesus. But that, and that we trust in our false selves, the selves that we create, instead of the true self that he created. Because God gives us a name that we can't earn because it's who we really are. I think that's enough. So, this last church is about that Jesus wants to ingest us and not spew us out. The whole series has been about how are you going to let him in and what he's already done to come in, which is this the body broken, the blood shed, and that as we take in Jesus, we actually become more like him because we are what we eat. So open your door and invite him to come in. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. This is what Jesus has already done. So when you let yourself fall in love again, it's easy to eat the crumbs.